We're in our Advent series where we're taking a look at how the gospel came to us through the perspectives of four different uh, individuals, you could say. The first was Gabriel, the angel, and now we're at Elizabeth. I love this story. You know, during this time of year, as Mark prayed about um, very well, uh, we are we are with our families, uh, we are with friends, uh, we're incredibly busy, we're trying to tie up work, we're inundated with all kinds of tasks we need to complete, and presents we need to buy, places we need to go, tickets we need to book, and uh, it's this uh, interesting time in our lives when our relationships with other people, some of them and our families were very aware of the brokenness there and the strain on those relationships, and yet the, the push and the pull of life just keeps us going, and we just keep moving. And we live in this tension of uh, unreconciled um, relationships and, and stresses, and yet at the same time, the tension of moving everything forward, parties to go to, things to be accomplished. And in the midst of this moment, um, I think this morning is about us slowing down. And slowing down is really hard for us. In Cary, it's really hard for us as Americans. It's really hard for us to slow down. I think it's hard for us to slow down for several reasons. I think one of those is because we're afraid. I was talking to a friend of mine this week uh, who I talk with regularly, and he started to confess to me just the underlying tension that he's feeling in his life. And he's worried about himself. And um, as I entered in with him and, and started uh, counseling him a little bit, he confessed that he's really scared of slowing down. He actually, he's a Christian, and he confessed, I'm actually really scared of going to Jesus. I hate to say that, but I'm, I'm a little bit afraid of what that might mean for me. It might mean that um, I might need to change. I might need to, to lay some some things down in my life and live differently, and I'm really not sure I want to do that. And of course, he inevitably knew that he had to, but he was trying to avoid it at all costs by being incredibly productive and busy. You know, Wade is from Miami, so I'll tell a story about Miami. The Surfside condominiums uh, last June in Miami, the world was shocked to see the Surfside condominiums which were built on the ocean side, out of nowhere seemingly collapse. About a fifth of the structure built on the ocean just, just collapsed, and in that collapse, 98 people died, injuring 11 more. And the whole world asks, how can this happen in America? How can it happen in an affluent place like Miami? Well, what happened was, over time, it turns out in 2018, some inspectors noticed that there was a corrosion that was going on Interestingly, underneath the pool deck that was draining into the parking deck, and over time, the uh, reinforcing steel structure in the concrete was corroding and failing. So as children are playing on their floats and their parents are drinking margaritas, the building is falling apart. And the owners of the building were warned in 2018, and then they were sternly warned about a year before the building collapsed that something needed to be done. Now, why didn't they stop? Well, it was going to cost them about $15 million. That's $15 million that they're going to have to pass back on to the owners of the condos, and no one wanted to spend $15 million because they felt like the cost of stopping, you're also losing rental income, 
The, the cost of stopping operations seemed so high that they couldn't justify closing the building while the repairs were done. But now that cost of $15 million plus rental income looks incredibly negligible and small. If anyone could go back, they would have stopped and they would have invested again in the substructure of the building. You know, why do I tell this story? As human beings, there's a correlation, obviously. You know, we were created good. These condos were, were good. They were, they, were, they were well built at one point in time. And, and it's even worse for human beings because we were created perfect. We were created in the image of God. We were created by God for his glory. And because sin entered our lives and sin entered the world, over time, sin has this corrosive power in our lives. It's not just a surface level problem. It's a deep foundational level problem. And we all sense it and we know it. One of the ways that we sense that something is wrong is what this story is about today. It's this, it's this concept of shame. Shame is an idea or a concept that if you grew up in the East and, or in, in, in an Eastern, more Eastern informed family, uh, then shame is something that you're very familiar with and you, you've lived with since you've, you've ever been born and you, you kind of know more about it. But if you grew up in a Western family, we may be a little bit less familiar. And the concepts of guilt and shame often get confused. So let me try to uh, discern between the two of those for you because both guilt and shame, what happens with these is they add to the weight of the structure of the building. We take on more and more guilt and shame, and this story is particularly about shame. And the shame creates a top heaviness that eventually the, the structure of the building begins to cave in on itself. Guilt basically tells us that I have done something wrong. That's what guilt is about. I have done something wrong, and I feel bad about that. That is the feeling of guilt. Shame... Is, is different than guilt. It takes guilt to the next level. Shame says, I am wrong. There is something wrong in me. There's something wrong in me. And because of that wrongness we feel in ourselves, that then bleeds over into relationships where we feel like we don't deserve the love, we don't belong. We don't, we don't deserve to have the love of people that we want and need it from the most. Most importantly, it affects our relationship with God. When we feel this shame, there's something wrong in me. We, we understand that there, there's a gap between us and God. And we feel like we don't belong with God, that, that God would not accept us because of that, that feeling, that, that sin that makes something wrong in us. So this story is about the removal of Elizabeth's shame. Shame comes to people in all kinds of different ways. We'll learn how it came to Elizabeth, and we'll talk about some other ways that shame comes into our lives. The gospel we learn in this story removes shame. Now, when I say that, if you're someone who feels shame acutely, you might want to counteract what I just said and everything I'm going to say in this story about Jesus with uh, an, a, counter, a counteraction called cynicism. You're like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't know about my life. You don't know the shame that I feel. I don't think the medicine of the gospel, the medicine of Jesus is going to be enough for me. 
You're going to be tempted not to take in the gospel. You're going to be tempted not to entertain the possibility that Jesus could free you from your shame. You know, if you went to a therapist and you talked about shame, what they, many of them would tell you, and I'm not against therapy, but what many therapists will tell you is that you just need to accept yourself. You just need to accept yourself. Well, then you need to ask your therapist the question, well, how exactly do I do that? Because the reason why you're there in therapy is because you can't accept yourself. That's the problem. You can't just flip a, I'm going to accept myself switch out of nowhere. That's where a lot of the writings that we read about shame, there's some good stuff out there, but that's where it falls short. Just accept yourself. How? How exactly do I accept myself in a way that changes the way I've felt about myself for as long as I can remember? How does that work exactly? That is the big question. How do you accept yourself? You need to understand something, someone far greater than you, someone who goes beyond you, what he, what the Lord God Almighty thinks about you and what he says about you. If God forgives you, then you can accept God's forgiveness and you can accept yourself because God accepts you. That's what a lot of people want to leave out of, the, out of the equation, that the Lord God himself, what does he think about you? Well, in this story, we learn that the gospel replaces Elizabeth's shame with joy, and then the gospel replaces Israel's shame with joy, and then the gospel can replace your shame with joy. So let's talk about Elizabeth first. The gospel replaces Elizabeth's shame with joy If you look at verse 5, Elizabeth was in the line of Aaron. What that means is that she grew up in a priestly family or that she was a a pastor's kid and she was a pastor's wife, essentially, is the best correlation that we have here. So you have a woman here who's grown up in church and uh, she's a PK and now she's a pastor's wife. It says in verse 6 that she and her husband had walked blamelessly before the Lord. That's more than Olivia and I can probably say about ourselves, Um, but that's the account that's given of these people in Scripture that for this woman, it doesn't mean that she's perfect, but it does mean that the appraisal of her life is she is a woman who has sought to walk with the Lord genuinely. Verse 7, they had no child, and she was now advanced in years. This means she was barren. It says there, and The reason for that is on her side of the marriage. She, they had no children because she was barren. So maybe it was a problem on her side as far as we can tell. So barrenness is an incredibly painful reality that some women, and if they are married, their husbands have to walk through. Now, I want to say that not all women respond the same way to the reality of not being able to have children as as other women Uh, But for many women who are not able to have children and for their husbands if they're married, they would say this is the most painful uh, reality they've ever had to walk through together as a couple. I have a good friend who's also a pastor, and he and his wife, and his wife in particular, has had a deep desire for their whole marriage to have a child, a biological child, and they were never able to to have children, and for her in particular, this pain of not being able to have 
a child biologically has just been, uh, she would say, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Uh, In their pain, they decided to adopt some children. They adopted two children, both of whom ended up being extremely difficult to raise, and both of them, upon turning 18, disowned their parents. So that she has experienced the shame first of not being able to have children biologically, and she has experienced the shame then of being a parent, having kids who really, uh, they're pastor's kids, they're not, they're not doing well, and upon 18, they move out and want to have nothing to do with them. Other couples in their struggle with childlessness have had many miscarriages. They've been able to conceive many times, and they've had miscarriages, and suffering in that way is a painful, painful journey that they've had to endure. One of the hardest things for, from what I understand from walking alongside some of these families um, is, is not just the pain of not being able to have children. It's also sometimes the pain of being misunderstood and not belonging in community. It's it's wanting to be loved and, and cared for, and it's instead feeling like uh, there's something wrong in you and with you that keeps you from being able to experience that community. And we should understand in the church that if someone is facing the, uh, the, the pain of childlessness, it should motivate us so ardently to show them the love of Jesus and to accept and to move toward them. So if childlessness can lead to shame today, and it does in many cases, then you need to, if you go back to the ancient Near East during Elizabeth's Day, then this feeling of shame, this ostracization that happens sometimes because of shame, uh, you you could say it would be on steroids. um, Because the value of women in that day in an agrarian society was all wrapped up in how many children they could have. And that's just the way that it was at the time. So in our day, there are other ways uh, we've learned uh, over time that this is not the best way to understand the value of women. In that day, that's not the way they understood it. Your value as a woman was really wrapped up in, in childbearing. And so for Elizabeth, she had probably become to be known <coughs> sorry, as the old sweet lady who could never have children. And so in a small town, uh, that was her deal. That was her identity. And, and though she had served God blamelessly, it says, she walked with God, the gossiping, I'm sure, was there. Um, what did she do? What did Zechariah do to deserve this curse from God? And, and it kept her, as the other women that she... <clears throat> Uh, as, as she, I'm sure, you know, went through high school, uh, you know, or whatever they had back then, you know, get out of that age and, and kind of grew up. Her friends all had children and, and moved on. Golly, this is hmm. um, And then there were, you know, they had their grandchildren, and by then she's, like, she's about 80 great-grandchildren uh, are around. And she uh, has gotten used to it by now. Um, she's just... Elizabeth, the old, uh, righteous, barren woman in town. And this has become her identity. Now, this is very important. Um, 
why was Elizabeth barren? Well, her friends probably said there's something wrong with her. She did something wrong uh, to deserve this from God. But we know from a story in the Gospels that this is not, uh, this is not the case. Uh, and I think it was John chapter 6, uh, some men approach Jesus. I'm not exactly sure of the reference. I'm going on memory there. But they say, what this man was, was born blind, was it his fault or his parents? And Jesus said, you're, you're all wrong. This guy was born blind because I created him this way in my own understanding so that the sovereign glory of God could be revealed in his life in a different way. They had gotten it all wrong, and people had gotten Elizabeth all wrong. Biologically, something was broken in her, but it wasn't her fault. This is how the sin of Genesis 3 had had trickled down over the generations into Elizabeth's life. And this is the genetic, the genetic reality of her life. Some of you have conditions, possibly physical or psychological or physiological, that you've inherited genetically. It could be barrenness. It could be some kind of mental health struggle. It could be a struggle with weight. It could be an autoimmune sickness. There, there are many ways that we all are genetically broken, honestly. But some forms of genetic brokenness make your life really hard and you stand out a little bit more because of that genetic difference and it makes it harder for you. It makes it harder for you. It's not a result of your sin. This is just how the misery of the fall has impacted your story. You long to be known and to be embraced and you you want that and you need that and yet sometimes it's a very challenging thing you. Others of you, uh, that's not how you've received shame. It's not been through your genetics. Some of you have been shamed by things that have been done to you, uh, by a parent or by another authority figure in your life. I learned fairly recently that my great-grandfather on my father's side killed my great-grandmother in a drunken rage uh, because he believed she was having an affair when she, it turns out, was not having an affair. My grandmother, my dad's mother, this happened when she was 16. And so she was one of the youngest, she was the fifth in the birth order of seven in the family. So for her being 16 and then for her younger siblings, it was incredibly painful. They were in a small town and everyone knew. So when her mother had died had been murdered by her father, and her father went to prison. She grew up with her brother, and then it affected her for the rest of her life. She lived with an inferiority complex, and she was reminded, this happened when she was 16, it happened, this affected her into her 80s until she, she passed away. There are, there are decisions that people have made in our lives that we had nothing to do with, but yet we have received shame from that event that happened to us. There's many other examples I could tell. Abuse is all kinds of abuse. That's not your fault. But yet, that sin that's been done to you has affected you. And perhaps the shame you carry is related to a sin you have personally committed or sins you have personally committed, and it's things that you have done wrong that make you feel ashamed. And... And like my friend I was talking to earlier 
this week, uh, you just, uh, especially if you live in Cary, it's probably the way that you deal with that, very, very possibly anyway, is that you are a performer. I mean, you can work. I mean, you can, like, get some stuff done. You can lead. You're smart. And that's how you've learned to cover over that reality in your life. And this is where Elizabeth found herself. She was bearing reproach among people in verse, it says in verse 25. Bearing reproach among people means that she was living in this shame. People were putting shame on her constantly. She did not feel like she was included. This has been the story of her life. So the important thing we need to look at here is how does God respond to Elizabeth in her shame? So for someone who feels ashamed, this is the big question. How does God really feel about me? How does he really respond to me in my shame? First of all, we notice in verse 25 also that God sees her. God does see her. It says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. So God sees her. God hears her prayers. But for someone who's ashamed, God seeing them is actually can be quite terrifying. I mean, if God sees everything about me, all of these reasons I feel shame, then how does God feel about me? So what happens next in the story is important. The second thing we see is God doesn't just see her, but he brings new life in her. He, he brings his life to her in a miraculous way. Now, in her experience, God answered her prayers for a physical child, bringing physical new life into her body. And that may or may not be the way that God answers our need for new life. How God definitely answers our need for new life is by sending another son, who will come next in the story, Jesus, who can give new life to us inside of us, who becomes our Savior. And with the giving of that new life, third, God takes away our shame. If you look again at verse 25, she says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Reproach among people. This is another way of describing shame. Over time, she had lived with this shame that had built up over time. And God is saying, now I am removing your shame with me first and also among people. You can just imagine, here she is carrying the baby. Now she's in her fifth month and she's starting to show. Maybe she's getting some kind of ancient Near Eastern version of maternity clothes. And you can just see her growing confidence, going out into the, to the market and, and being around. And people are just blown away at what is going on with her. It's feeling more real to her now. The joy of new life has replaced her reproach among people. But the fourth very important element that we find here is not just that God sees and God gives new life and God removes shame, is that God surrounds her with a community who shares in her joy. You look at verse 58. It says, And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown mercy to her, great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Now, I just want you to imagine what this was like for her. She's 80-ish years old, and her whole life 
She's been known as the childless woman, and she has been gossiped about. She has been misunderstood. She has not been accepted, and now God has reversed her story. He has replaced her shame with joy, and she can accept that from God, but will she accept community from other people? All of these people who have hurt her for all these years, will she, even though they want to rejoice with her, will she be able to rejoice with them? Will she be able to to transition her own self-understanding from wanting to justify herself, like, now don't you see? It wasn't about me. There's, this, isn't, this isn't my fault. God hasn't been cursing me all this time. Will she be able to let that go and receive love, receive community from other people? Because honestly, that's what she needs. But the, one of the hardest things for a shamed person is not just to receive the love of God. It's to receive love from other people, love from other people who have hurt them. The very people who have hurt them. Now that is a work of grace and a work of the gospel. And that is what God is calling her to. Elizabeth is a living example of what it looks like to have shame removed by grace. Joy replaces shame as this joy-filled community surrounds her and God blesses her. So that's Elizabeth's story. The gospel replaces her shame with joy. The second element of the story is the gospel replaces Israel's shame with joy. So Elizabeth's story, we know, is more than just an isolated event in history. Yes, this is about Elizabeth's story, but Elizabeth represents more than just herself in this story. You see, Elizabeth was an aging woman at the very end of an era, which we can call the Old Covenant era of the Bible. Here, God's people... You know, since uh, all the people that lived, all the people before Jesus, all this time in this old covenant, um, all the t- they were called to be obedient sons to God. They were called to follow God faithfully, Israel was, but actually they weren't faithful and they ended up being fruitless. They were called to be fruitful and they ended up being fruitless. They were called to be obedient. It turns out they were disobedient. They were called to call the nations and show the nations the glory of God, it turns out that they didn't do that. It turns out that most of the time they did not show the nations the glory of God. But they they went through these cycles of sometimes being obedient, but most of the time the general story, if you want to just boil it down and put it in a nutshell, is that they were fruitless. They were not faithful sons. But here you have Elizabeth. Here you have Elizabeth at the end of this old covenant era as an old woman who miraculously is uh, able to get pregnant. And it's not just any kind of pregnancy. She is now pregnant with John the Baptist, who is going to be a forerunner at the very end of the Old Covenant era. He's going to be the forerunner. He's going to be the preacher that gets everybody ready for Jesus. So what God is doing right here at the very end of the Old Covenant, even though Israel has been unfaithful, God is saying, look at what I'm doing. I'm going to make you pregnant with the gospel in your old age, Israel. Do you deserve that? Do I have to do that for you? No, I don't. But I'm going to remove your shame, Israel. I'm going to replace it with joy. I'm going to do it in a way that's so miraculous that you can't even believe it. 
I'm going to give you a foreshadowing of what's about to come at the very end of this old covenant era in the person of John the Baptist through a miraculous pregnancy of an 80-year-old woman so that no one can say that this is not a miracle. I'm going to do this for you. If you think about shame in the Old Testament, what had happened was because of Israel's sin, even though God loved them as a son, it meant that God could only love them at a distance. Because God is holy and he's perfect, he couldn't just have a direct communing relationship with Israel. It always had to be mediated. There always had to be a go-between. There always had to be a priest. There always had to be a sacrifice. There always had to be some kind of festival that mediated the, someone that could stand between the people and God. So God loved Israel, but he, he couldn't throw his arms around Israel. He couldn't completely commune with them. He couldn't send his spirit into Israel because of their sin. This is how Israel experienced both the love of God and also some shame in their relationship with God. They couldn't fully walk with God as, as it had been intended in the garden. But soon, very soon, there's going to be another miraculous pregnancy. And we know it's coming in, the, in Mary. So here, a young woman at the very beginning, the very beginning, of the new covenant era, miraculously is going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and she's going to give birth to Jesus. And in Jesus Christ, the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect son, God is going to move all the way in. He's going to love Israel. He's going to be that father on the road in the parable. He's going to throw his arms around Israel again, fully, and say now because of what Christ has done, unmediated relationship, no barrier, no more loving at a distance. I'm going to throw my arms around you, Israel, again. So this is what God does for Israel. God removes, in the coming of Jesus, the forerunner being John the Baptist, God removes Israel's shame in a miraculous way. Through Christ, he comes to the church and replaces our shame. We are the new Israel now. In our fruitlessness, God sees us. God sends new life to us in Jesus. He removes our shame, throwing a hug on us, embracing us fully with no boundaries. And he surrounds us in a community like Elizabeth that is not bound by shame, but is seeking to love one another in the love that we have been shown in Christ. This is how God loves Israel and replaces their shame with joy. Now let's talk about, finally, how the gospel replaces your shame with joy. Your shame. So God sees you. God sees you. He sees all you've done, all you've left undone, all that's been done to you. He sees who you are genetically and all that's going on. And the question for you is, as God sees you, and he sees you all the way to the bottom, he has this knowledge of your life that is comprehensive. Um, we can act like God doesn't see because it makes us feel more comfortable, but he does, and he sees. So the question then is, as God sees, what does he see in you? What makes you feel ashamed? I know that's an uncomfortable thought to have to sit in for a minute, but what makes you feel ashamed? 
Um, what, maybe it's something that you've done or done many times. Maybe it's something that you've left undone or left undone many times. Maybe it's something that's been done to you. Uh, maybe it's something that is biologically or genetically broken in you. God sees all of this about you. The big question is, how does God seeing these things then respond to you? He sees you broken by the fall. How does God respond to you? This is the gospel. In your failure to be fruitful for him, in your failure to be the son or daughter that you know that you should be, how does God feel about you? Well, he moves toward you. He doesn't just see you. He moves toward you with new gospel life, with grace. God moves toward you with grace. It's almost too good to believe that this God who sees everything then, who knows you all the way to the bottom, would then love you all the way to the top. When people are asked, uh, how does God feel about you when he sees what's messed up in you, the most common answers, if we're honest... When people are really honest answering, they usually say something like, I think he's repulsed by me, I think he's upset with me, or at the very least, he's disappointed with me. But the reality is, in Christ, that God doesn't feel those ways about you. None of that is true. If we accept the grace of Jesus, then Jesus makes us clean. There's no degree of shame or guilt that you might feel that is beyond the power of Christ to clean up, to save, to redeem. You could put it this way, that the merit of what Jesus did for us on the cross is so massive and so great. God loved you so much in sending his son and him shedding his blood on the cross for you that you cannot possibly have outsinned the grace of God and your shame cannot possibly be greater than the cross of Christ. It is simply not possible that God now, because of what Christ has done for you, he is that father on the road in the parable of the lost son. He does throw his arms around you wholeheartedly. He he loves you. When he looks at you, he doesn't see you as one who should be ashamed. He sees you as one who should experience his joy, the joy of being loved by him as our father. But it takes faith to put on that new identity. Some of us feel more comfortable carrying around shame because we've done it so long. We have this relationship with shame where we feel it, and so we work harder. We feel it, and so it makes us feel bad, and so we do something in response to it. And to lay down that pattern, to break it up, and say, I'm just going to receive the grace of God in my life, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to experience God's love and his joy, and I'm going to learn to live a different way is something that is hard sometimes for us to do. You need to allow the water of the gospel, like waves on the shore. Think about going to the beach. If you sit there for 30 minutes and you can just watch wave after wave after wave after wave, you need to let the waves of God's grace wash over you and wash away your shame like he did for Elizabeth. The gospel tells us that you are forgiven, that God does accept you, that he does forgive you, that he does bring you back. You belong to him. And that means you belong also in the church. It means you also belong here. Now, I want to close with this. 
I want you to imagine what it would be like for an 80-year-old woman to become pregnant. Now, that sounds really exciting, sort of. Um, I can't think of a bigger life change. So Elizabeth and Zechariah are booking cruises and medical appointments, and now um, they're cruising down the baby aisle at Target, and they're cruising to pediatrician visits. It's not what they expected. But this is what the Lord gave them. Sometimes redemption and the life change that it brings, it makes us feel uncomfortable. We have to learn a new way. Like my friend who said he was terrified to look at what was going on under the pool uh, of his life, it's worth looking there. Because when you look there, if you'll, if you'll allow yourself to go there, what you'll find, how does Jesus feel about you? Jesus is there with you, and he loves you, and he forgives you, and he accepts you. And I hope you don't leave today wondering if that's true. I hope you can believe that it's true. I hope you'll accept what Christ has done for you, the shame-breaking grace of Jesus. I hope you'll understand that it's not just true for Elizabeth and it's not just true for Israel, it's true for you. That this is the gospel story for you. This is what Christ has done for you. And you can receive his grace today, the shame-breaking love of Jesus Christ. There may be something that you've struggled with your whole life and you've made a vow to yourself essentially and said, this is who I am. And Jesus is saying, no. I love you, and I have come to redeem you. I have come to break up that inertia in your life. I have come to change your life. Like a barren woman when you're 80, he's come to you and said, you can change, you can be different. I'm bringing my new life to you. Will you accept the grace of God for you? Will you accept the grace that comes in a community? We're all learning here how to live unashamed, how to live with the hope of Christ ruling our hearts. We want to be a community like this at Trinity Park where we're, we're saying no to shame and yes to Jesus. And we're living that out in community with one another. I hope you can find a community that will reinforce grace in the foundational levels of your life so that you can enjoy the grace of God in community. Let me pray. Lord God, I... Your, your grace... It profoundly amazes us. Lord, I just ask that you would help us to get our hearts and minds and souls around what you've done. Lord, that you would prepare a way like John the Baptist prepared a way for Jesus. Lord God, do the work. This is too good to believe, and our cynicism wants to tell us that it just can't be that easy. But, Lord, at the end of the day, we find there's no other way. Either you reconcile us and accept us, or, or shame owns us. And so we, we believe the gospel. We believe it's true. We believe in the shame-breaking grace of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would take the gospel that breaks shame so deep into our hearts that it would dismantle everything else and we would find ourselves transformed by you. I pray in Jesus' name.